This episode of The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Brett Sergalis, thanks for joining us on The Backdrop. Oh yeah, my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. You were the selected uh, New Club Book Club uh, reading for June, or the author of Golf's Holy War. So I, I primarily want to dive into that with you today. Um, for starters, for those that don't know what the book's about or uh, have picked it up yet, where's the war and who's winning? <laughs> well, yeah, okay, that's that's a pretty fair way place to start. Um, yeah, the war is essentially, you know, um, the fact that uh, science and technology have kind of really changed the landscape of not just golf, but kind of modernity, really, and like how we deal with everyday life. Um, and there is some pushback there between what had existed previously and these artistic traditions um, and the way people learned golf specifically uh, in the game. Um, so that's kind of where the conflict is, where all of this information and data is now becoming available. Uh, and what kind of pushback is there from what had already existed? Um, in terms of who is winning, <laughs> uh, to be honest, you know, I feel like science is winning, you know, like otherwise it really wouldn't be, it went from nothing to something. So yeah, obviously it's, it's doing a good job of making inroads and, you know, like in this day and age, it's, you'd be remiss not to, uh, look at data and technology and science, at least in some regard. So I don't know if, you know, uh, I don't, war might be overstating the, uh, the fact, but I think it makes clear that there is this conflict. And that was kind of the point of the title is that, you know, there is this conflict, both sides feel very passionately about where they stand. Um, and it kind of is this, is this bigger topic that we all deal with in life that's kind of projected itself onto the game of golf. Yeah, I, like I do for many of these, I just turned the the last page uh, today, this morning. I got okay. up early to finish it off, and yeah, um, it it is such a good title. I mean, I know it's it's a good way to right. get get a lot of eyes and attention, uh, but you just dive into the many different fronts of that of that war, and I couldn't help but think today as I was finishing it up of Bryson DeChambeau. Yeah. And just like, like what that guy has an internal golf's holy war going on, or he's the lead. Is he the leading, you know, perfect soldier for the side of science? Uh, like, you know, bright. I, I always found Bryson to be really interesting. Um, and so, so, you know, he, he, his, a lot of his philosophy goes back to the golfing machine, which is really like one of, is really the bedrock side of science in in the game um so to me he's always been fascinating because he's using he he's using data in different ways right where uh you know i get asked sometimes about like analytics in golf right and it's like well okay it's different than it is in other sports because there's no team there's no coach there's no the strategy is kind of on the player um, and that's separate from his own technicality, right? His own mechanics. So it, it's almost like when you look at analytics, what you look at what Bryson's doing in terms of course management, that's where his analytics comes in because he's, you look at strokes gained um, and you see that the guys that are in the top 10 driving distance have a chance to win every week. So Bryson sees that stat and goes, well, all right, if this is the way they're setting golf courses up, if these are the golf courses we're playing, 
I'm going to crush it. I'm just going to hit it as far as I possibly can. And that's kind of the way he, you know, that's the way he thinks. He said, let's find an advantage in the numbers that other people might not have. Let's find, you know, the Billy Bean loophole here where I can find myself a competitive advantage. So, you know, he kind of started with the mechanics side of it, with the golfing machine and how he developed his golf swing and, and the one, the, the length of his clubs being, you know, the same length. And, and now he's taken that aspect and put it onto the analytics of, of uh, dissecting exactly how PGA tournaments are won. So to me, he's like, he's fascinating. And like, it's a risk. He's taking a risk trying to like getting this big. Um, because what if the cholesterol risk or, well, <laughs> well yeah, probably, <laughs> uh, I'm no nutritionist, but, um, he's taking, what if, uh, I'll show my own sensibilities here. What if the PGA tour and the USGA come to their senses and start playing better golf courses and setting them up better. And then all of a sudden it doesn't matter that much, you know? I mean, and then now what? You know, I mean, he's never been exactly one that has that's that strived around the greens or with any sort of uh, creative shot making. Although he probably gets, he probably deserves a little bit more credit for that aspect of things too. But, um, but he's, he, you know, he's dug himself this hole. Like he's put himself in this corner of this is his perception. Um, so I'm, I'm, I think he's fascinating because free thinkers are what the game needs. Like it need, there needs to be more interest. Like, so if that's the way you think, if you're drawn to that kind of uh, analytical nature and that's the way you think about the world, um, you're probably drawn to Bryson and going to see how he, how he does. And you could also be drawn to a, a train wreck because who knows what's going to happen with the guy. And the last guy that was super successful with the golfing machine was Bobby Clampett. Now it's 1982 and he won one PGA tour event. So he's already been the most successful guy that's really stemmed out of this, this book. Although the book has many webs as, as um, I'm sure you saw as, as I wrote, you know, so there's a, that book kind of goes out into a lot of different angles, but Bryson right now is a really, he's a really interesting character. And in like, how do you deal with all of this, all of this data and technology and information at your fingertips? And I'm glad you started with this side of the debate um, or the discussion, because uh, I definitely find myself in the other camp. So as I was getting ready to talk mm. to you, I just thought, uh, I'm going to spend all the time talking about golf in the kingdom, Michael yeah. Murphy, uh, the mystical creative artistic side of the game and i i wanted to do justice to the other side and yeah. and make sure that we you know highlight all the analytical more calculated um you know the golfing machine is kind of one of the textbooks when you talk about the swing um but what i wanted to ask you about uh the dualism i i really enjoyed the, the chapter around tiger and the ability for both sides of the brain to occasionally come together and, and and that's when golf is really at a playing ability that's when it, they're at their best and i think you maybe use hogan for that too tell us a little bit about your your exploration of how these two sides when they work together because there's a few chapters where you just see them merge uh, yeah. so beautifully yeah you know i think i think every great player and every great coach has understood that there's a balance between the artistic and the, the technicality, the mechanics, you know, um, and nobody has exemplified that more in this era of 
technology than Tiger. I mean, you go from 1997 Masters win till now, and you see all of this information become available to tour pros. We are really before 1990. If you look at, you know, I highlight these three Masters in a row. If you look at those three Masters, you see a, a, what I call the jump in evolution, really. It's in 1995, you see Crenshaw win the Masters with, you know, this pulling on the heartstrings with Harvey going to Harvey Penick's funeral and he's getting all these great bounces and, and, you know, he's this older guy. He's a great putter. He kind of, you know, that's the way he thinks about the game. And then, you know, in 1996, you get Nick Faldo working with David Ledbetter to become like this almost automaton of, of technicality. And then you, and at the same time you watch Greg Norman collapse under this pressure um and then in 1997 you see tiger come along and everything changes you know not only does uh, the game change in so many ways i mean just because just because of the way tiger looked because of the way he acted because of the way he approached the game uh in terms of from a competitive standpoint the way he approached the game from a curiosity standpoint where he just he went down uh every rabbit hole he could find with different teachers um, and he kind of rode this wave of, of technology that was coming along. You know, he understands the track man numbers, he, but he also understands that, you know, you need to feel your way around the greens. He might be, he might like, you know, he might be the best putter of all time, but it just because he's such, he the rest of his game was so great. People might say, Oh, it was, it was Crenshaw or it was Faxon or it was somebody else. But, Tiger's probably the best part of all time. It just happened that he had the other game to go with it. Um, the lasting thing, uh, the lasting quote for me from Tiger, the thing we're going to be, or I'm going to be thinking about that he said in 20, 30 years is, you know, he played his best when feel meets real. So that's kind of when he, you know, he hits a shot, he feels like a block push and he looks down on the track man and it says it's a block push. And he knows he's off when it feels like a block push and he looks down and it says it went straight, you know, and then it's like, oh, okay, something's wrong, you know? So he, I, I think he's been the best example of how to use this information, but not get overburdened with it. And maybe there were times he was a little too focused on it. Uh, maybe there were times early on where he wasn't, you know, didn't think about it enough, although I can't really think of any of those times, but it's probably might've happened at some point. Well, you know what? the time when he was in between coaches like that, that might've been part of it. Um, so he's really been this, this balance between these two where, where golf, you know, it requires so much of you and every great player has understood their own mechanics in some intrinsic way. Um, and then it's just about going out and executing, which is very unmechanical. So I think, you know, I think that's why it's such a, it can be such a compelling game, why it draws so it draws so many of us to it so deeply is because you do have you do have this concrete side of things, but that's not the answer. You know, as much as people want it to be that it's not. Um, so it's kind of trying to strike that balance. And Tiger's probably done it. Tiger has done it better than anyone in the history of the game. The Speaking of balance, as, I, as I'm reading the book, I think you do interchange the uh, chapters a bit from pure the, the science side to what, what do you call the other camp, actually? I, I've, I've tried to come up with more words for myself, the mystical side. The, what, do you, what do you call the other what, science and what? You could say art, science and art. Science yeah. versus art, sure. 
Right. Um, and, and, and I kind of kept trying to guess what the author, what camp he would be more in for his own <laughs> golf. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw out art. I feel like you would be more in that ball game, but yeah, I- well, you know, it's funny. I get, this is something that's come up a handful of times as well. Um, it's, I present the book in a way where, um, there's only the first person in the prologue where I kind of tell the story about how the whole process of writing the book started. And then the epilogue where I tell this story about this wistful journey I took to, to abandon with a really interesting group of people. Um, and the rest of it is uh, presented objectively as a reporter um, as much as I possibly can, because to me, there is validity in both sides. Um, and it really comes down to how does your brain work? How do you think? You know, it really like if you really want to get into the neuroscience of it, it's it's you know how do you learn as a person, which changes, which is different from person to person. It's really brain chemistry. Um, but to answer the question, well, so I so I did all this. It took a, the book took a very long time. Uh, like I, it, the original seed of the idea was in 2008. So it was 12 years. Um, and during that time, I kind of right, right when I got out of college in 2006, I really didn't play a ton. Um, and then I, you know, I was working at the newspaper at the New York post and kind of grinding along, like focusing on my career. And then I had this idea for this book and then I kind of worked on it for so long. And then right near the end about 2016, so a couple of years ago, I wanted to play competitively again. So I had compiled all of this information, right? And I spent time with all of these really smart people, these people who have shaped the game for so long. And I had to ask myself the hard questions. How, how do you want to get better? You know, it's very easy to go, okay, well, here's side A, here's side B, and, every, you know, the reader figures it out. But when you have to ask yourself the question, it's, it's not easy to answer because you don't necessarily know. Um, and the, the best way I can describe it myself is like, is, is um, I was playing in the 2016 mid-amateur, um, which was at Bayonne, great golf course. Um, and I go out for a practice round and I had a, I had a really great caddy. He was like, uh, show me around. You're going to love it out here. You're going to play great tomorrow. Okay. I get a different caddy for the first round of the tournament. I got off the first tee, uh, you know, I hit two iron or something. I have like 132 yards on the ground into the hole guy goes hit 147 yard shot i said i i don't know what that means i i I can hit a you know like i can hit a pitching wedge i can hit a six iron like high low left right like where i don't i don't that's not i don't know what that means like that doesn't mean anything to me um so of course it took me five holes to say that to him and i was six over and i you know missed the (laughs) cut but uh but, you know, I play a lot of golf with a guy who's, who's a pretty good player. He's like a five handicap. And to him, that's it. He goes, he's shooting lasers from 42 yards because, like, that's what he needs. He knows exactly how far to take it back. And, like, that's the 60 degree. And if he's in between clubs, he doesn't know how to hit a soft one. You know, where I'm out there, like, carving little seven punch seven irons from 140 because, like, that's the way I think. I don't know. Like, and that's that to me, that's where the most enjoyment playing the game comes from is kind of seeing shots and trying to execute and pulling it off um and like using that creative side so i will never tell anyone way to think you know i think there's validity in both sides but i kind of lean that way only because i think that's kind of how my brain is set up 
I, I really enjoy that story of understanding it through uh, the relationship with a caddy. Cause those of us that have been to, you know, your band ins or Scotland or your uh, even your local clubs and you get a variety of different caddies, how, how you learn, I've never really thought of it that way, but how you learn does matter because I, I will have the same caddy that someone raved about just said, Oh, this guy's so yeah. on it with every single number and everything else. And I'm like, Oh, that was, that was like, analysis a paralysis by analysis just so much information right uh but i i've never thought of it from that lens that makes a lot of sense i like i i like to give me like give me what it is like i want to know what it is on the ground give me the fully objective thing and then i'll figure it out if there's something that i might not know like okay it's 132 on the ground it plays a little uphill like it doesn't look like it but it does or like don't hit it right it looks like it's okay. Like that's the kind of stuff I want to know, but don't tell me to hit it 142 yards. Cause like I, I, my brain locks up and yeah. I think just everyone's just a little different. Yeah. Uh, all these different outlets of the game or, or different um, fronts, I call them of this golf's holy war. Uh, which one did you go into with probably the least amount of understanding? Um, obviously you've played competitively, you played golf your whole life. You probably had a, a good grasp on each of them and, and we're, we're ready to dive in but was there one that you didn't know as much about and once you got into it you were just like I, I need more I need to to learn as much as I can about this topic um there was a lot of them really <laughs> um because so like yeah my my history is like I played in high school um I, I got like a couple sniffs to try to play d3 got into Villanova decided to go there and be an English major um, and then kind of really didn't play very much for a while and came out of school and started working at the post and um, you know the hours were crazy I didn't have a lot of time I didn't have I was making you know absolute dirt money and was the happiest guy in the world because it was just it was great and I was covering you know boxing press conferences at Gallagher's steakhouse in the middle of the day it was like it was a it was a kid's dream. And now like really that job doesn't even exist anymore, which is sad considering it's less than 15 years later. But, um, but yeah, so when I started getting back into it, when I, when I started like really looking at when I was shocked at kind of how the game, where the game was when I wasn't paying attention to the nitty gritty of it, when I was just kind of covering the pro tour and following who was winning, when I looked kind of underneath the hood and saw what was happening, I was, I was a little shocked at what was going on and how far science had come. Um, and like kind of where we were with, with how teachers were um, using all of this data and how, how the best players in the world were, were trying to get better. Um, and there was a lot of things I didn't know. Like I had read golf in the kingdom um, and thought it was cool and liked it. Uh, and I had never heard of the golfing machine. You know, so I was, the same, I think, same. yeah, I think at some point during the process, I picked up, um, I heard of it. And then I saw this, uh, Scott Gummer wrote a really good book called uh, Homer Kelly's Golfing Machine, which is like a narrative about Homer Kelly, who wrote the golfing machine and kind of who he was and what happened and kind of how all this started. So to me, it was like, I read that book and was like, okay, well, the first authorized instructor of the golfing machine was this guy, Ben Doyle out in California. So I found Ben Doyle, you know, and flew to California. And he was in a, uh, he was in a Christian science nursing home in San Francisco. So 
I didn't know much about Christian science, you know? So now I'm going down that road of Christian science and I see that, oh, like, look at how similar this worldview is of Christian science and, and how it parallels the, the golfing machine and how that is portraying that same worldview in golf. Um, and so that to me was, a, that was an eye opener because soon thereafter, I, you know, I went over the Golden Gate Bridge and met Michael Murphy and spent a couple of days with him. And, you know, his Eastern philosophy was a, was a parallel to golf in the kingdom. And the way people use, you know, the way people love golf in the kingdom and are drawn to golf in that way. So that's when I really saw that it was like a big picture of like, well, this is something we deal with outside of the game. You know, this is something that we all kind of are going through. And then this is just how it's projected itself on golf. So like going down those avenues and then uh, like where, you know, what's Michael Murphy's deal? And then you find out about Esalen, you find about, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and like, all oh, Big Sur and all of these wild stories that have happened. Um, you know, I'm like really every, every avenue of the book from, from that to, and then like how that projects out uh, backwards into history. Like where did this start from? So you get into Hogan and all of that stuff. And then going forward into sports psychology and, and golf course architecture and, and, and neuroscience, like kind of where we are now, it's, uh, and TPI, the Titus Performance Institute, all that, like going down those rabbit holes was great. Um, you know, I, I think I was really lucky because, well, practically I was very lucky because I had a great editor at Simon & Schuster who was, gave me the breath to report it and say, like, go do it. And he gave me the time and, the you know, the support to kind of follow something that I thought was incredibly interesting. It's like, imagine you have this nugget of information that you just find so interesting and you get to chase it down every different avenue you can find. And you find something else interesting, go down that. You find something else interesting, go down that. So, you know, like going back to finding out where, where, like how to, where's, what's Bob Rotella based in, you know, like where did that come from and finding like old William James philosophy um, and going back and, and, you know, seeing, seen like those old masters and, and what those guys were thinking um, and kind of where we are now. It's like, it was, I got to see this whole broad spectrum of the game and kind of uh, where we were and where we are now and where we might go in the future and why these things might happen. Um, so there was a lot of things that I didn't know that I was able to kind of sniff out and find. And it was a, it was a really fun journey and i hope that kind of translates into the book and that's a very um uh, circuitous answer but i think that's kind of the point <laughs> yeah i was joking with a member today that your bibliography page might just be our our follow-up book clubs for like the next two three years yeah you know i really wanted <laughs> i wanted the bibliography to be just a picture of that i we're doing this on zoom so you could see that's the that's the bookshelf um Oh, that's it, huh? <laughs> yeah. And there's more. There's more books than that. They're like those are just golf books, and there's more. And I'm not going to tell you I read everyone cover to cover, but most of them I did. Um, and I wanted the bibliography to be just a picture of that in black and white, and just the word "select bibliography." Um, and then I was told I couldn't do that. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's like that. It's, 
another part of this process was like, it's constantly changing. Like what's happening is constantly changing and there's always these stones left unturned. So I had a lot of, Oh crap moments. You heard, like I heard something new, like, Hey, have you heard of this? Like, Oh, you know, I haven't like, and then like Amazon, where is this book? Like send it to me right now. Um, because I need to know, you know? So it was like, uh, there was a lot of moments like that. And, the, and so the bibliography is, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of books in here as my wife complains about constantly. So <laughs> it's, it's, um, it definitely hits, hits home for uh, the members that will be listening to this. Cause we, we like to shine light on all the different aspects of golf. Like if you, if you're getting bored with the game, maybe just mix it up and, and dive into maybe it's golf course architecture. Maybe you need to, you know, try to get back into instruction and things to improve your mechanics, or maybe it's just uh, working on your breathing and getting more into the, the, the Zen. And there's just resources out on so many aspects of the game, which is what I think I enjoyed about your book. It just was a, a resource that condensedly explored each of them. Um, I want to go to, I want to come back to Michael Murphy. We'll do that in a bit, but let's, let's talk uh, the the course architecture. Cause a couple of my members did tell me that they really felt it picked up right at that midpoint in the book. But I think, I think it's because that's what they're interested in Mm -hmm. the architecture section. So um, where's the, the, the war at when it comes to to architecture, you think In in a good place closer to the art or. Yeah, I think we're moving in the right direction in terms of architecture. You know, it's hard golf's the only sport where the where the field is drastically different not just week to week but day to day hour to hour you know it's constantly changing um and really what's being asked of the player is not is not necessarily the competition of the other players but it's what the golf course is asking of you so at that exact moment so it's really important you know, and that dictates, especially on the pro level, it dictates are the entertainment value. And on the, and on the amateur level, it dictates your enjoyment um, in terms of playing. Uh, so, you know, and uh, there, are, there are some um, outside forces when you start thinking about architecture and, and where it went, where it started, where it went to, you know, you, have, you go through the golden age, um, through the through the tens through the thirties um and then you know you kind of hit the depression in world war ii and then we come out of world war ii and it's happy days and there's condos going up in levittown and um and golf courses are all part of developments and that's when that kind of golden age stuff disappears because it wasn't new it was old and everyone wanted to be new so that became like look at what we can do with bulldozers instead of what cb mcdonald did with you know horse-drawn carriages like um and so it's not to say all of that stuff it's not to say everything for 50 years was bad you know like there's and um it's just different it's just it's just and it's new and they wanted to show that they were new and that was a reflection of of the age you know like that's what people wanted so that's what they got and so now I think now golfers are kind of being drawn back towards um, those philosophies that were around during when those golden age golf courses were being built that it, it's, you know, it's a game. It doesn't need to be like championship level at every moment. Um, 
there needs to be obviously some consolidation just with the economic boom that happened after Tiger, where there was an overexpansion and golf courses all had to be championship length. And then it became too expensive, too hard. And it was driving people away from the game. And now there's this wave of minimalism, um, which really starts at, at Sand Hills and core Crenshaw. Um, and now has kind of expanded out into this, this, this group of people that are, that are just brilliant in, in you know, Tom Doak and Gil Hans and Bill Core and those guys are at the at the forefront of the list, um, but they're driving things back to where it was with a new age feel to it. You know, like minimalist. Like you go play Old McDonald up in Band, and it doesn't look like a CB McDonald golf course, but it plays like it. You know, because they've under they've kind of internalized these ideas and then put them you know spun them in a modern light um and i think as golfers we're very lucky to have these developers that care about projects like this um and i don't know i feel personally happy that there's enough golfers out there that have the same sensibilities that want to go there so that they're economically viable to go be building places like that um so i think architecture is going in the right direction um in terms of getting back to the basics of like what makes the game fun, you know, like the ground game is fun on uncertainty. I, like I find, I find a, a huge joy in the game in uncertainty. I like blind shots. You know, I like seeing where the ball bounces. I don't mind getting a bad break, you know, and like the PGA tour pros that freak out. It's like, I understand you have a ton of money on the line. You want everything to be, you want to hit a great shot and you want to be rewarded. I, I get it. Like, but it's, you know, it's different. That's not the way the game is for everybody. Um, and they kind of had, you know, they, they shape the narrative for the rest of us, really. Um, and now it seems like amateur golf is starting to kind of pull away from that. Like, yeah, okay, Bannon is going to hold an amateur. Right? Or did they hold an amateur? Um, or, or did that? Was it supposed up, Coming up. I think they just had Yeah, right. It, it, right. It was postponed. Is that this That's year? That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, like, uh, yeah, okay because they can stretch it back to whatever 7,100 yards and hope the wind blows. So the college kids don't make a joke of the place, but um, you know, like it's going in the right direction. There's a lot of smart people and there's a lot of smart people now who have worked under, you know, Tom Doak and, and Gil Hansen that are, that are coming out too. And, you know, you know, Tom, Tom worked for Pete Dye and, and we'll talk to you, uh, you know, in the in hushed tones about the brilliance of Pete Dye, and he should because there like there is a lot to be taken from those big artificial mounds and and island greens, you know, which are so antithetical to uh, the way he designs golf courses, but not in spirit in the spirit of adventure and creativity that kind of Pete Dye instilled in him. So, architecture is a you know you can go you can go pretty deep on that, um, and I think sometimes people go a little overboard. Um, in terms of saying, you know, everything's either, it either has to be like this or it sucks, you know? So there, you know, the Pete, the Pete Dye has some good golf courses out there too. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is uh, the art of architecture chapter. I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and there's a Gil Hans uh, quote here that, that I liked, which is, I think, there is an innate ability in all of us to know when something just feels right 
feels comfortable. I think that's what you're talking about with the the experience of, you know, what's out at Band End and, and elsewhere. And, I, and I've had a, um, you know, an interesting experience with that from a new club perspective where we do uh, feedback forms on every course that, that we play as a group together. And it's just funny how sometimes people don't know how to exactly say it, but I think there is that innate ability of a golfer to know when something is, is kind of meant to be the way it is and not being forced upon uh, a piece of land or, or what have you. And um, I, I, that just it was something that stuck out to me. Yeah. I mean, there are people that want to be, there are people that want to be awestruck at every moment. Right. Um, you know, I like this might, this might not be the best example, but it's what's coming to mind is that I personally think that Shinnecock is the best golf course in the country. Right. And you can't see the water. I'm okay with that. You know, like I'm okay with saying Shinnecock is a better golf course than Cypress point. Like, cause it is. Uh, and same thing with Pine Valley, Pine Valley, you don't see the, you know, like, but Pine Valley kind of awes you with the sand and everything else. But it's, it's the best. Shinnecock is the best because even the boring holes are good. The four and eight, like you got to hit it in the right spot to go into the green the right way. And to me, that is what is, that's, what's so interesting. You have to, being able, the the most the thing that attracts me to the game the most is the the golf courses that make you think. So you have to think your way from from tee to tee to hole, and then you have to execute, and it forces you to execute. Um, and that is that's the best to me. And then if you don't, maybe you have a chance for a heroic comeback. Maybe you're toast. Maybe who knows? Like, and that's kind of at the whim of the golf course. But I don't. I don't think you need to be awestruck at beauty. You know, like to me, I'd rather see, I find like a rolling hill of fescue to be more beautiful than a waterfall. You know, So um, in terms of golf course, cause like that's the golf, like maybe if we're in the, in the countryside of Ireland, the waterfall is like in this beautiful nature reserve and it looks really cool, you know, but on a golf course to me, like the golf courses are beautiful. And like that is more aesthetically pleasing to me with my clubs on my back than seeing some sort of uh, flash faced, you know, or like perfectly white manicured bunker or something. Yes. Yes. I, uh, I have a very similar appetite for, for the way courses play. And even I look at the pictures I enjoy, it's, it's usually of the contours and I start imagining my shot hit, you know, hitting a shot into that that beautiful green instead of over that beautiful cavernous. Right. Uh, uh, cliff um, let me I'll tell, give you one thing here Matt is that yeah. I remember the first time I played Wingfoot which was not too long ago and I didn't know the greens were like that you know like I was like what are these because I was I was like yeah Wingfoot like yeah it's great whatever like it's you know it's held all these championships and it's a really cool place and then you get there and the greens are like out of this world that and it does not show on TV like that 18th green on the West course, I was like, how does, you know, how does Phil make six there? And it's like, you can, you can take six pots, like, like, and you need to kind of see it and feel it uh, in that regard to kind of really get a picture of the scope. Let's see, what, what have we not touched on? I guess the sports psychology portion of, um, I definitely enjoyed the uh, tidbits on Bob Rotella and and how he kind of came to it what what surprised you about what you were able to uncover in the history of sports psychology with golf um well you know i 
I remember I did a I did a magazine story uh, on this sports psychologist, this local guy on Long Island named uh, Dr. Tom Ferreira. Uh, I actually went and did hot yoga with him because he thought it helped his students. But uh, duty calls. That's what you got to right. do. What you gotta do. Yeah, right, right. Uh, uh, that's a story for another time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, good for the golf swing. Yoga is great for the golf swing. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Um, but so he was the first one that kind of explained to me the difference between, cause he's a, he's a clinical psychologist. And so he was kind of, you know, I don't want to say he was poo pooing, uh, Rotella, but that was the view of clinical psychologists was that sports psychologists are kind of just, they're patting you on the back. Like, is that really solving a problem? If you have this, this subconscious demon of some, you know, maybe you have a, a anxiety towards success, which is pretty common among elite golfers too, you know, well, let's trace that back to why and then try to solve it. That would be the Freudian clinical way of figuring out where Rotella's line. I remember him saying this to me and like, it's sticking out was that he's not taking people from abnormal, making them normal. He's taking people from normal and trying to make them excellent. Um, and that's, he teaches the thinking of excellence, you know? Um, and it kind of sounds like BS a little bit to me on the surface until you see it work. And until you realize that, um, there is science behind this, but you don't need to hear it because that's not necessarily going to help you. Uh, so, and then to know that really Rotella was based in William James, which is this really interesting, uh, late 19th century professor at Harvard uh, that kind of began this idea the the will to believe, you know, that you can kind of, nothing will, nothing will come to fruition if you don't believe it's going to happen, you know? So you, you kind of do have a handle on the constructs of your own reality and you're not necessarily a, just a passenger or a victim, um, which is so in the face of, clinical psychology in some regards and and this i'm really um dumbing it down and probably making myself sound dumb compared to the people who actually know what they're talking about um but that's like really the kind of general basis of it so you know when you see people that um go to sports psychologists and use them and and benefit i mean it's such a mental game that there's no there's no way it can't play a big part um you know there's I, if when you like, you know, everybody, this happens to everybody where you're playing with someone who's struggling and they're like, man, what am I doing? Matt, what am I doing? Tell me what I'm doing. And I don't, I think in the middle of a round, it's like, you don't want to give somebody a piece of technical information unless they're doing something so blatantly obvious. It's like your ball, stop playing it off your back foot, you know, like, but I think most, I think what I say most of the time is, is just commit. You're, you're making uncommitted swings. And so, um, uh, Pia Nielsen and, and Lynn Marriott have a uh, a really good drill uh, that where they they have a player uh, start the round with ten tees in their left pocket, and then on every shot you you judge not how the shot came out but your commitment on hitting it. And if it was eight out of ten, then you put two tees in your right pocket, and if the next one was eight out of ten, you put two more, and you want to balance them out so that you have ten tees in your left pocket the whole time. So you're commi- and it's almost impossible to do if you're being honest with yourself, but it forces you to care. It forces you to commit to the shot, which also kind of pushes some of the mechanical out of your head, which 
is can be debilitating in terms of actually physically executing you know so i i to me that's like a it sounds really simple right and it has nothing to do with interpreting your dreams but it's sports psychology and it helps um so to me that's that's you know and and you know golf is a golf is not a game of perfect bob's first book is like still selling you know thousands and thousands of copies a year because it works you know like it's not it's it, like it's it, it helps people you know and so uh there's a lot there's a lot to be said about that stuff and it's not and i do still even though the stigma i tell the story about rotella how he was in this meeting with the golf digest uh, gurus and it really could have gone bad and then he had sam sneeds step up for him and say this is you know um how many U.S. Opens would I have won if I could have talked to you? And that was really the breakthrough moment of sports psychology and golf because he, Stamps, he could have stood up and said, this is all BS, take a walk, you know? Um, and that stigma still exists in some regard, but, and so the PGA Tour guys, like they're, they, maybe they don't publicize it as much as they want to or, or as much as they, maybe they don't publicize how much they rely on it. Um, but they're insulated with these huge groups of people around everyone. So um, the sports psychology aspect is fascinating because that's also, you know, if you want to get better, like tomorrow, read golf is a, golf is not a game perfect. Like don't, don't read golf my way. It's like one's going to help you a lot more tomorrow than it is, you know, uh, the other one. So that's, that's a really, that's an, that's an interesting avenue of things too. I, I re-picked up, uh, a book I'd read a few years ago that really helped with my game. And it was uh, vision 54, uh, P. Yeah. Nelson and, yeah. and Lynn Marriott. And it, cause you mentioned them in the book, obviously probably in that chapter, what I um, totally missed on the first portion is that the, a big influence for them was Michael Murphy. And I think it was Pia went out to uh, the Institute there in big Sur. And yeah. so she went through that experience. So I, it's so cool. Uh, the further you get down the rabbit hole in golf, obviously all these worlds start colliding, but you got to meet Michael Murphy um, as part of this, right? I, I'm yeah. from, I'm a huge fan of golf in the kingdom. I wish I would have read it when I was younger. I probably wouldn't have understood any of it, but uh, <laughs> I, I've reread it a couple of times now. I mean, it, obviously it's part of the, the Bible of this kind of mystical side, the art side of, of the game. But um, could you tell us a little bit about what that was like having breakfast with Michael Murphy as part of this book? Yeah. Um, at the time, it was, first of all, it was really hard to get a hold of him. <laughs> uh, and I, at the time, I hadn't seen him quoted anywhere. Like, I had, nobody had talked to him. And since in the last year or so, like, you know, the best golf writers out there, and Shipnick's talked to him, Alan Shipnick and, and Bamberger, Mike Bamberger's talked to him. Um, and he's not quite as reclusive as he was when I spoke to him or when I met him um, a couple years ago. Uh, but he, he, yeah, you know, he's, he's a, he's a power. He, you know, he's, um, he's a guy that you, you understand how smart he is uh, without it being annoying. Um, he's, he's funny. Um, he's like, he's witty, but he's not, or you know he's he's not overly serious but he's pretty serious about what he's talking about um he's spiritual without being in your face about it um 
yeah, he's, you know, he's a really interesting guy. And to me, I mean, what I really, first of all, I just wanted to know what kind of guy, like what he was like. And then I wanted to know, he's really, what really piqued my interest and what I know I couldn't get an answer unless I talked to him was in the second book, which a lot of people haven't read, The Kingdom of Chivas Irons, um, he starts talking, he starts talking about physics and he starts talking about string theory. Um, which I had just started to be interested in. I had just read Brian Greene's um, uh, The Elegant Universe, which if you, there's rabbit holes and then there's that. Like that's a, that's, that's a whole nother story. Um, it's a whole nother book. But uh, so he starts mentioning string theory and starts talking about this and like how all of this mystical stuff is kind of, wrapped into the middle of this modern physics and so through this two book sequence where he's blurring reality and fiction because the story of golf in the kingdom did happen in a very different way like actually the real michael murphy actually was going to india to study uh at an ashram and he did stop in scotland and he played at saint andrews which is in the book is is a very poorly veiled name of burning bush you know so uh but so and then in the second book he's blurring these lines as well and i was like is what he's trying is 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 he trying to say that like all of this mysticism is going to be explained in modern science at some point that that spirituality does have a a physical root that it actually exists that it's not just mental Uh, and that's not something i you wouldn't that you can't know that unless you ask him. So I remember I, I kind of, you know, we, we talk and we go on and on. I went to his house, we hung out for like, and then I, you know, went back and the next day and I'm, I finally asked him like, is this what you're, is this what you're doing? And he goes, but you're right on it now. You're right on it. <laughs> and like kind of left it at that. And I was like, you know, what a fascinating guy. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I and I walked out like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I knew anymore, if I didn't know anymore, but I certainly felt better about it. <laughs> you know, um, I hearing the stories about Esalen and how it started and, and the Hunter Thompson stuff and his grandmother and his, he's got stories. I mean, I'm pretty sure Stein, he, his Murphy's grandfather was a famous doctor and, um, like helped give birth to Steinbeck. So there was like a, yeah, there's like a big connection there. And then his, his grandfather was the one that purchased 400 acres in Big Sur on the coast. So that was a pretty good investment in, you know, 1912 or whatever it was. So, um, he, you know, he's, that was, that was a pleasure, you know, and I, I feel really fortunate for a lot of things I got to do in the book. And, and that's one of them. I got to meet Ben Doyle before he passed away too. So that was that I felt really fortunate to be able to do that. And, and meeting Michael Murphy and spending time with him. It's like, it's, it's like I was saying before, like there's just this thing that you find so interesting and you get to, I was, I was given the ability to call him and say, would you, will you answer my questions? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, which is, uh, which was a pretty cool thing. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm, I'm really pretty uh, happy and fortunate that it all got to happen the way it did. I mean, what, you know, you read golf in the kingdom and you feel just the whole time you read it and you go, man, do I want to get a beer with this guy and just 
hear yeah. more stories. Um, and you're the third person I've now talked to who has actually met him. And everybody seems to have this transformative <laughs> experience with the guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, he has like this, uh, you know, he has this aura about him that's kind of in so engaging and, um, and when you're done, you don't really, you're kind of confused of what just happened, but like, you're really happy it happened. Um, there was a physicist named Neil Bohr's who used to do that too, where people would go and talk to him. They'd come back and be like, he's absolutely brilliant. I have no idea what he said, but he's brilliant, you know? <laughs> and so Murphy kind of like, you think back to what he said and it's like, I recorded like almost all every minute I was with him. And I was like, he didn't really say anything that like super monumental, but like it sure felt like it in the moment because he just has like this kind of this, uh, this way about him that is just engaging. Well, when you uh, ended the book and I just ended it today, so that's why it's, it's up fresh in my mind, but uh, the string theory, it came, it, it was a, a, a kind of stop and pause moment for me as I was reading over that section of the book, because uh, obviously I find myself in the art camp of all this. And I thought that's exactly what I've always um, enjoyed most about the game of golf is that creativity, the, the, romantic, the romantic side of the game. And that's what I was playing it for. Um, but I also played competitively and I uh, analytically as a, as a kid, I straight C's in math, never cracked right. a B except for one class. I got an A plus in physics. And when you start talking about the string theory and I, and just being such a big fan of, of um, golf, the kingdom, I was like, Whoa, Whoa, this is, this is, this is maybe a rabbit hole that I might be going down next. <laughs> yeah. Well, I gave you, I gave you the entrance at the elegant universe by Brian green. There it is. Uh, okay. Elevated universe. The ele- the elegant universe. Oh, yeah. Elegant, elegant. Universe. Yeah. It, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer. He's a, he's like one of the leading string theory physicists and string theory has almost gone out of fashion a little bit now. Um, you're getting, you mean this is hours and hours of, cause this is, this is my next, like I have, you saw this bookshelf, the, the physics bookshelf is building. Um, uh, and it's, I, I don't I don't know if I'm I, I know I'm not smart enough, <laughs> you know, to like really follow everything. But like when you get a good uh, science writer, they can kind of explain it in layman terms. And then so like after years and years of reading, I finally have like a grasp on like the basic ideas so I can read them now in passing and like, OK, it's like learning new vocabulary, you know, um, but yeah, there there's like a middle ground there that's a lot bigger than you think it is, uh, in terms of like what like what is science? Like the philosophy of science uh, is artistic, you know. Like a lot of Einstein Einstein's biographies is awesome, and you read a lot of that. It, there's there when you're that deep into science, you have to be. You're asking yourself the biggest questions there are right? Like, where did we come from? What is reality? Like, and, and that stuff has, has to go into the artistic side. Like what is, what, what is beauty? Like what makes you like something, you know, like, and that, that stuff like scientists, any deep thinking scientist has gone through all that stuff. So that middle ground is a lot bigger than you think it is. And just like, just like golf pros too, like, you know, 
I spent a lot of time with Sean Foley and you, and you BS with Foley and like he, he's all about like art and exploring that side of things. And, but he could explain the D plane to you in detail as well, because, because there is a big cross section there. And I think golf is like a really cool spot where these kind of things come together too. Cause it's, cause it's such a thoughtful game and it, and it can be so interesting, but it's also physical and mechanical. So, um, that's a lot of what draws me to it. So you're saying Bryson is both our Einstein and our Da Vinci. Well, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but you know what? It, it's in real time. It's watching it in real time. It really yep. is. We, I can't imagine there being a better time to be a golfer if you're into this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another reason I want to write the book like right now. It's because it's like, well, I want it to be timeless. I want it to be a picture of this period. But this period is so interesting because like, even things now are kind of flattening out. Like I don't know how much more, I don't know how much better track man can get or 3d analysis can get, you know, um, maybe it can get a lot better. What did I know 15 years ago? Right. But, um, but it's, I feel like it's kind of leveling out and here's like the point where it all happened. Like here's where everything, all this data came in and everything kind of changed. So it's kind of a, it seems or feels like a, a pretty big moment in the history of the game. You, that, that was one thing. Uh, you just reminded me to ask you about, which is, I think there's a section in the book that goes into a little bit of the, um, uh, the effectiveness of PJ pros and, and their traditional methods um, that, you know, maybe obviously there's a lot of methods out now, but at a certain time it was really, uh, maybe there's an analysis on people's handicaps prior to lessons and post, or, or I, I just remember something vaguely about that. Uh, where do you stand on getting instruction now, knowing that there's so much data, you know, you can easily go out there and say, well, just put down a track man and not easily 16 grand or 20 grand. And, right. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and just keep hitting balls until you see the ball flight that you're trying to work, get, or, or where, where are you with, with, uh, with that for your own game? Yeah. I mean, that comes down, right. That comes down to the way you think. And so it goes back to me, like my, when I like, I don't really want to see my swing on video um, because my own, I have a pretty, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of my own proprioception and I kind of understand what I, what feels, what things feel like to me. And when things go out of whack, maybe I just need like a little bit of practice. Like hit a couple shots and feel it, try to fix it myself. Um, and so really what I occasionally go, I've really only taken like maybe five, six golf lessons in my life. I took, I remember I took three, when I was 16 years old at a, a great public facility here called on Long Island called Eisenhower Park. It was with a guy named Sal Silverstone. And he was like telling me stories about getting pulled over and beers falling out of the back of his car and, and then like going to some PGA pro event shooting 67. Like I was, I was loving it. You know, as a 16 year old boy, I was like, this guy's so cool. Um, but his philosophy was pretty much like get back on the inside of your right foot and swing hard. You know, So it was like, don't go outside. And like, that was it. Those were my three lessons with him. And then I took like, I really didn't take a lot of like, here and there maybe i'd take a half hour with one person and like forget it be like i didn't like what that guy had to say um and then i met the i met mike hebron during all of this former national teacher of the year um lives he works out of here at a on long island this place called smithtown landing 
he could have gone so many different places uh, over his career, but decided to stay at Smithtown Land. And he gets, he's such an asset to the community, to the golf community as a whole, to his local community. Um, and he started realizing he was a golfing machine guy. And then he started realizing that he didn't knew nothing about how people learn. So he needed to start learning about learning. So he started taking classes at Harvard and, and become friendly with a scientist at UCLA, a neurobiologist. And, and so he started learning about how people learn and it's really intuitive. You learn through experience and failing. So his lesson, so I, I'll go and I, I try to go and hang out with him once a year at least. Um, and I'll bring my clubs, but sometimes they don't come out of the car. You know, like sometimes we go and we hang out and we like, he'll say like, you know, maybe like what's going on? I'd be like, ah, oh, I think I'm spinning it too much. And like, I'll throw a tennis ball against the wall or something for a half hour. <laughs> it's like, you know, and that's like, or we won't, we'll just talk, you know? And to me, that's about where I, where I am with lessons. Like I'm not going to turn pro, you know, <laughs> like I'm pretty, I, I try to compete in the Met stuff here in New York, which is pretty hard because the, the section is so good. And there's so many like really, you know, you play in the Met amateur. One year I, I went to a qualifier and I shot even par at first time I saw the place and was like, Oh, it's pretty good. And it's great. I'm going to play in the Met amateur. And I missed a cup by three. <laughs> I was like, all right, you know what? Like, this is just like, <laughs> this might be a little too much for me. And the Met amateur this year is at Beth Page Black. So it's like, all right, I'm going to go out there with a bunch of 22 year olds and watch them fly two irons over my driver. <laughs> but yeah. I'm pretty comfortable with where I am in my game. I'm going to have fun playing it. I hope for the rest of my life. Um, and so my lessons are more going and hanging out with Mike and hearing what he has to say. Cause I think he's a really interesting guy and maybe hitting a couple balls and him telling me like, what's the problem? You know? Yeah. I, uh, that's that's yeah. very similar to how I feel on, on uh, working with a coach and they, they got to understand how you learn. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah. It needs to be a conversation. Yeah. That's like the new age of teaching too. I mean, you have to understand what your student wants and don't overburden them with information unless they want it and then give them, you know, what they want and realize that that's not probably going to make them better. But, uh, you know, everybody thinks differently. So that's kind of up to coaches to figure out their students now. Yeah. Uh, now I, I know you write not just about golf. So uh, you've spent a lot of time in, in, in hockey. What uh, are you working on other projects right now? Are there other things coming up? Uh, well, yeah, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the hockey season to start again. <laughs> um, yeah, so I cover the NHL full time for the Post, New York Post. Um, this is this was my seventh season doing that full time, um, and then so in the summers I'm covering golf and like U.S. Open tennis and whatever else is is around. I've covered everything over over the years. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm waiting for hockey to come back from this break. I mean. When they paused the season, I was in the middle. I, I, I've pretty much been on the Rangers beat, so I was in the middle of a three-game road trip. So that, that week, I was on four planes. So I came home, and it was like, yeah, I don't feel so great about this. But uh, luckily, everybody's healthy. Um, but, yeah, that's, you know, I'm waiting, waiting for that to come back. It looks like it's pretty promising right now. So I think everybody could use a little bit of sports in their life. Uh, and it's cool to see the PGA Tour back. It's cool to watch Bryson hit bombs and uh <laughs> but you know seeing the nhl seeing the nba and it's going to be that's going to be a, a nice uh it's going to be a nice booing effect i think for the public public psyche you early on alluded to a change you'd like to see the pga tour make what 
what else? I think it was around courses, but what would you like to see make it, make a shift for the PJ tour? I mean, we all gripe about, especially as like avid fans. I think we all like to gripe about different aspects of whether it be coverage or uh, the same stroke play event every week or the courses that are playing. But what would you, if you were the czar, what would you want to change for pro golf? This is a, this is a sticky, it's a sticky question. Um, Cause there's a lot, it's not, it's not black and white. Like there's a lot of factors that go into this, but it, overall, I think that the PGA tour needs to make a radical change. Like I think, I think the product is getting less entertaining um, as much as I love it. Like, I don't know if anybody loves golf more than I do. And I, you know, I don't, I'm not really clamoring to watch some of these events and I wonder why. And it's like, well, you know, what brings you to the event and it's the great players and it's the great courses and it's, and it's the stakes of like, well, what's on the line. Um, and I don't want to poo poo on the PGA tour, but you know, ratings are going down. Ratings are going down in all sports, but ratings are going down. Um, Tiger's about to not be in the picture. You know, they've ridden that cash cow for 25 years. Um, attention spans are being drawn thin everywhere. Um, so, you know, the PGA tour kind of needs to make a change. And I think golf in general needs to kind of be centralized. And I don't want to be this out here on a limb pushing the premier golf league, but I, to me, something needs to change, right? Like if you, how is it a bad idea to get all of these guys together and play for a ton of money? And and it's not it's the PGA tour and the European tour. They don't, they won't go away. It's like, look at European soccer. Like the premier league is still great, but it's not champions league, you know, and champions league is what people around the world care about. And that's what gets you into the game and gets you caring about premier league, you know, and premier league is a great product and the PGA tour can remain a great product with all of the guys that are, you know, below the super elite. Um, and, and like I said, there's, there's a lot of sticky issues here. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't think we should be stuck in traditionalist world of the PGA tour. I mean, the PGA tour broke away from the PGA of America and Arnold Palmer was a hero. You know, that was, that was in the early sixties. Like things change. You know, the landscape of the game, like uh, the landscape of sports is changing drastically. And for the PGA tour, which is already walking around with this uh, reputation of being a stuffy conservative old sport, it kind of needs to be pushed into the new era. Like there needs to be a new outlook. It needs to be viewed differently. Um, Cause if things keep going the way they are, I mean, I just don't, I don't see it. I don't see it being viable going, going forward. So yeah, there's that, there's the structure of the PGA tour and, and practically it's, it's the fields and it's the golf courses. I mean, like the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne to me was like one of the most enjoyable events as a viewer, as a fan of the game, because it's a brilliant golf course. It was set up terrifically. And you saw arguably the smartest player of all time thrive in Tiger because, yeah, he can hit it really far when he needs to, but he thought his way around that golf course better than anybody, which is why he played great. You know, so it shows like, isn't, shouldn't that be a wake up call? Like, and some things like this have come along the line and like 
you think it's going to be a wake up call and it's not. And it's like, just look at how, look at how many people, what, like, do you really care about the president's cup? Like, eh, you know, like I don't, you know, okay. But like I was watching every minute of that because I wanted to see these guys have 97 yards in and have to hit it 20 feet left and, and see the guys that landed at a foot from the hole bounce over and make bogey. To me, that's like, I know how good that is, right. you know, like, and that is so entertaining. Uh, and, and yeah, there are golf courses like that where are not, it's not so great for spectators and tents. So this is what I mean. Like there's, it's a very, you pull back the layers of, of the construct of the PGA tour and how they make money. Uh, yeah. And it's pretty complicated. So you can't just snap your finger and have it change, but, but it needs to be pushed into the future. Like something needs to happen to the game where interest is drawn up again, because it's only waning. And when Tiger is not playing, you know, like now there's more interest in where his boat is than who's in the field this week. Right. And this is a great golf course. So like you care about it and the field is stacked right um, at, at Harbortown. And it's, and, uh, but he's still the guy, there's only a few guys that move the needle and you got to get them together more than four times a year. Sounds like that's the next, that's the next book reinventing pro golf. <laughs> well, and like, guys. and like I said, I don't know if, if the premier golf league is the answer there, they have a lot of issues in their own right. And, and where the money's coming from is always interesting. The world is a very complicated place. Um, and to stand up and say, for Rory to say, Oh, I don't like that 500 millions coming from Saudi. And then he probably got in an Uber, which is dominated by investors that he probably doesn't want to know about. Um, or the human rights histories in China where he goes and takes an appearance fee, you know, like the world's a complicated place. I don't begrudge him for any of that and good for him for wanting to take a moral stance. Absolutely. But you know the PGA Tour, and uh, sorry to to get down a uh, a different avenue, but the PGA Tour, and I love golf and I care about it, which is why I'm passionate about this side of it. And like, I don't know if the PGL is the answer, but I think something does need to change, and it's it's a uh, it's kind of at a crossroads right now. Absolutely, and and it's the people that are the most passionate that are gonna care enough to make sure it has the longevity, make sure it does the changes that are needed. Right. If the PGL turns out to be some, like, you know, Greg Norman tried the world golf tour and it didn't work. The, the world golf championships haven't really panned out the way people envision them. If this turns out to be some sort of money grab or like, you know, the people there don't have the best interests of the game at hand, then it's a problem. And those are deep questions that I don't, you know, I don't I don't know the answers to right now. I'll tell, um, I'll tell you what I want. I, I, through COVID, when we were sportsless and nothing was on TV, I just dove into uh, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf on YouTube. Oh, the one on Pine Valley is tremendous. The, oh, news, there, the news, Newspaper 7 that Gene Littler makes. Yeah. What, yeah, what could go wrong, right? You get two of the world's best golfers. You get the, be, the world's best golf courses. I mean, some of these places. There was a place right. in Paris. Was it Paris? Outside Paris? Uh, no, it was outside Rome. I got to see this place. It looked like uh, like yeah. Seth Rayner on steroids. I think it, <laughs> right. it doesn't look the same as it did in the 60s when this thing aired. But right. um, to me, I, it was like the simplicity of the telecast, you know, not overdoing it. I would love to see some of that. Yeah, I, I hope these matches, like I've liked these match. Like I thought the match at Seminole was great. Um, I, thought, I thought the one with Tiger and Phil and Brady and, and Peyton kind of, 
came off a lot better than I thought it was going to, which was good. But like, I'll go watch these guys carry their bag around Seminole to let them do it. You know, like yeah. have like a little series, go play, go, you know, or like go, go pick up and play some great club course and, or go like, you know, there's all these stories about you know, Phil going out to Cyprus that like the week of the pebble. And then like, you know, I just saw one today. Somebody was saying that he may, maybe at one point he was nine under when he got to the 16th tee and tried to hit five iron and it went in the water. It's like, I would, who cares about par? Like go to places and let these guys shoot 60. Who cares? Everybody freaking out when, when, uh, when St. Andrews has the wind down and like, Oh, is he going to shoot 60, 59? It's like, who cares? Cause the wind's going to come off tomorrow and change. What's the difference? Yeah. Um, so watching these guys go go to places and shoot super low numbers, if the memberships can put their egos aside and realize that par is a pretty stupid, arbitrary number, and entertainment's what matters, and that, I would watch that stuff all the time. Yeah, week in, week out, just make it fun and entertaining. And right. What do these guys? We'll, we'll give you the U.S. Open. Make it as you know. Right. <laughs> keep that brawny, and then the one week a year. That's great. Right. I would make it hard too. Like I. Sure, have some have some places be be even par, you know, but like it doesn't have to be like what was Justin Rose's winning score at Marion, right? And it was seven thousand yards. Things even, yeah, yeah. Like it doesn't need to be, but you know the U.S. the USGA lost money on that U.S. Open because they can only get like ten thousand fans in, right? Where you go to Bethpage and get sixty thousand people a day, you know, forty thousand of them are buying six plus beers. It's like, you know, that's the revenue is a lot different, so. Yeah. Um, it's a complicated issue. There's a lot of factors, uh, but they could certainly get more creative. I'll tell you that. It's complicated. Yeah. yeah. Well, Brad, thanks. We won't take too much of your day, man. It's been awesome chatting with you. Uh, thanks for writing this book. Golf's yeah. Holy War yeah. was, was really rad. I think what was great about it is um, these are the conversations we as golfers have in our own head, you know, uh, yeah. whether we're, we're – <laughs> knowingly or not, you know, sometimes we don't wish we had these discussions in our head and, and really you put a lot of them in one book, man. And I just thought it was a really well done, uh, succinct, how you succinctly did it. I, I, I'm impressed because, uh, it's so many worlds of the game of golf all, all in one. It's really cool. I, that's very kind of you to say, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for buying it. Thanks for being a supporter. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Keep, keep them coming. Well, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Great. Thanks, Thanks again. Man. Yeah. Bye. Yeah.